Well, 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 this is the Concrete Conservative Hour. This is Mac on the Rock with Marvelous Ed Vidal. How are you today, sir? I'm doing great, and I'm looking forward to our day today uh, with WSQF 94.5 FM, the Concrete Conservatives, and we're going to have Jihad Watch today. We're going to try to educate... Specialists in Jihad Watch. Jihad Watch. We're going to have four specialists in Islamic... Uh, warfare and uh, ideology who are going to try to educate everyone and alert everyone to the danger from Muslim Jihad. Now, I think the big statement today will be that we're going to claim, we're going to make claim, I'm not going to make any claim. No, okay. Quiet. But we're going to make claim today that we're going to be able to prove today, I'm hoping this is true, that our thesis statement at the end of the day will be that Islam, in reality, is quite fictitious in terms of its characters, and it's basically a political ideology. Yeah, the, the core understanding about Islam is that it is an international political ideology. But let's see if our first caller is here. This is the Concrete Conservative, WSQF 94.5. Who do I have the pleasure to speak with? My name is Mac. Hi, this is Claire Lopez, and I'm uh, calling in for the show in a couple minutes. I'll call it no, you're control. on now. You're, you're on right now. You're live hey, on Claire, 94.5. This is Ed Vidal. Why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. This is uh, Claire Lopez. I am the Vice President for Research and Analysis at the Center for Security Policy. Uh, this is a national security-focused uh, think tank in downtown Washington, D.C. Okay, and I understand that you're particularly expert in Islam. Is that correct? I've spent a lot of time studying it. Yes, that's okay. true. So what uh, Manny was saying just before you started is that the basic theory of our uh, show today is that Islam is a international, that is not ethnic or race-based, international political ideology before it is anything else. What do you think of that? I think that's largely uh, correct. Um, there are many things tied up in Islam, but if you actually look at, for example, Islamic textbooks that are used in American madrasas for Muslim children um, around the country here, uh, you, will, you will see uh, that it is taught to the children that, quote, Islam is not a religion, unquote, right. but rather a complete way of life. So it combines... Um, the the um, religious elements together with political, ideological, military, and everything else in a way that Western civilization does not. Well, what, what I was telling Manny before, and he wanted to, to put it on, is that Islam was, first of all, a great military campaign of world conquest. Would you agree with that? Well, that certainly was the second part of it. Of course, the first part of it began, as we are told, at least in the biography of Muhammad, the Quran, and so forth, the Hadith. Um, the first part of it took place uh, in, in Mecca. Well, but I don't believe uh, any of that. Because I think it was only after the 622 Hijra to Medina that the military jihad began. No, I don't believe any of that, because I think uh, that was all made up. And the Hadith in particular are known to have all been made up. So I would say, and we don't have to argue about it, but I would say Islam is, first of all, a very successful military campaign launched in 635, led by Omar, the first caliph. And it was at a time when the Byzantine and the Persian empires, which were the two world powers in the Middle East, were totally exhausted. 
They had been fighting each other for 21 years. The Arabs had been auxiliary cavalry for both the Byzantines and the Persians. And they saw their chance because in, in 614, the Persians invaded the Byzantines. The Byzantines had taken their eye off the ball trying to reconquer uh, Italy, which is a mistake. Italy was gone. And they drove to the gates of Constantinople. Emperor Heraclius gathered up every piece of gold and silver in Constantinople, went and bought some warriors on the Black Sea coast and counterattacked, and he totally razed the Persian city. So both Byzantium and Persia were on their knees, and that's when the Arabs took their chance and attacked. Now, please argue that point. Well, what I would say, first of all, is that um, in Islamic doctrine, there are... Uh, six authoritative collections of hadith right. that are accepted by the authorities of Islam. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the two most prominent of these are um, Bukhari and Muslim. They were, those are their names. Right. Um, but the second thing I would say is that the Hijra, as I just said, took place, we are told, from Mecca to Medina in the year 622. And it was very shortly thereafter that Muhammad launched military campaigns. So those did not wait until after his death, which we are told yeah. come, came in 632, but rather began right after the yeah, Hijra. But... And in fact, one of the first and most important battles that was fought was in 624, called the Battle of Badr. Right. And it was the first time uh, in which Muslim armies had defeated non-Muslim armies on the field of battle. That, by the way, the Battle of Badr, is what Muslims celebrate as the Eid al fitr at the end of Ramadan. Right. Okay, well, um, in, in any event, in a, yeah, that's fine. I, I know about the battle. But a lot of those battles were Arab against Arab, right? Well, no, they were not. The, um, in fact, um, at the time, uh, historically, we, we understand that there were large populations of both Jews and Christians uh -huh, on the Arabian okay. Peninsula. Right. There were three very large and influential Jewish tribes called the Banu Nadir, the Banu right. Nuka, and the Banu Quraysh. Right. And these tribes were special targets of Muhammad and his armies right. um, in the 630s. I'm sorry, in the 620s, from 622 onward till his death in 632, he wiped them out. Right. The first two were wiped out and sent on their camels, pack your stuff and get out of here. The third one, uh, the Banu Quraysh, were the ones um, that uh, were um, not allowed to go into exile, but rather women and children sold into slavery. This is now in 628, and the men uh, and boys were beheaded, and right. we are told in the Sira that maybe numbered somewhere between six and nine hundred right um so he was beheaded he, he men was and behead boys beheaded that day those were jews beheading political prisoners i mean prisoners of war yes okay Perfectly so legitimate legal under islamic okay. law so all you, okay so all you've said is that you're right he uh during before 635 uh the muslim arabs were consolidating their power in arabia they were, and that's what I meant when I said they attacked other Arabs. They were consolidating their power in inside Arabia, but it was in 630. Well, no, actually, they burst out of the peninsula long before Muhammad's death, and uh, attacked um, uh, outside of the peninsula or uh, on up into, I guess, what we would call today the Levant, or at that time territory controlled by the Byzantine Empire in the Levant. I thought the first battle into uh, Byzantine territory was in 635. 
Really? Okay. But okay. So in any event, and then three years later, they turned on the Persians. Yes, in about 642 to 643 thereabouts. Right. Um, as you said, both those uh, those magnificent uh, civilizations um, were exhausted from fighting each other, right. and the uh, the armies attacked uh, both um, and uh, conquered both in a very short period of time. Yes. The Persians going down in about the year 642, 643, uh, somewhere in there. Okay, so by by 711. The uh, Air, the Arab Muslims had gone through and captured not only Damascus but also Alexandria, Jerusalem, and they kept going until by 711 they had conquered all the way through North Africa to the Atlantic coast, and in 711 they launched a, a, an invasion of the Iberian Peninsula. At the same time, going east, they went all the way through the Persian Empire. And by 711, they captured the city of Karachi at the delta of the Indus River. Right? Yes, the expansion was explosive. Okay, so I would say that is the first thing to understand about Islam. It was a great military campaign. Uh, It kept going in the west. They went through Spain. They were, they were not stopped until there was a skirmish at Covadonga in Asturias in 722, but they weren't really stopped until Charles Martel, the uh, chief of staff of the French king, called, they would call him the mayor of the palace, stopped them at two, in a field between Tours and Poitiers on the Loire Valley in 732. And then his grandson started the reconquest. Would you agree with that? Yes, and I would like to mention um, one thing in between here, and that is you mentioned uh, the, the Kingdom of Asturias, which sits at the, sits at the top of the uh, Iberian Peninsula right. and um, was sort of bypassed as the armies of Islam went north right. um, to, to, to fight the French, right. well, the Gauls, I guess, at that time. No, they were Franks, um, the Gauls that are being and, killed by um, the Romans. So what I wanted to say about Asturias is that they had a king. And his name was Palayo. Right. And Palayo uh, held a mountainous region um, in, in this area of the Pyrenees, and it was uh, defensible. And, and, and so they did. They defended it. He said, here is where this stops. I will fight. Uh, and that was the beginning of the Reconquista, which would take then more than 700 years. Right. But Palayo... Uh, in 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 the kingdom of Asturias, he was the king of Asturias. Right, Pelayo. Yeah, my grandmother's family was from Asturias. They had come to uh, Cuba from Asturias. Uh-huh. So I knew I knew all about that family stop, story. Stop, I, that's true. Okay. All right, so that right, that's second. the key. I want, I want the audience uh, to get your insight on why is it that the Persians find themselves to be so different and higher in the cultural hierarchy than Arabs. They were a civilized people before the Arabs uh, knew anything. The Persians, um, you know, as we've mentioned here, uh, had had a a, uh, magnificent and very ancient civilization. It goes back from today, 2,500 years or more. More. Um, And and they were very advanced um, in in all all kinds of uh, endeavors, including medicine and science and and, and everything else. That's where the magnifying lens came from. Chess. Yes. The game of chess. Right. So the the, um, Persians also were were, uh, brilliant writers. The Shah Nomei um, is their national... um, what would you call it? Their their, their national uh, epic. Uh, 
book. Yep. Uh, it, it is the story of the king, Shah meaning kings, right. and the Shahnameh, um, it, written uh, by uh, by uh, Ferdowsi, um, is 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 the crowning achievement of of literacy of of uh, literature uh, in the Persian language, and they they uh, fought hard to keep their language, even though. Um, many other places overrun by the armies of Islam um, were forced eventually to adopt Arabic. But in Persia, to this day, uh, they have kept their language, and proudly so. I've been studying it myself for many years, um, and uh, it is called Farsi right. uh, today. The P and the F are kind of interchangeable consonants if you follow linguistics. Um, but they also made an effort. Uh, Ferdowsi did, another author by the name of Hafiz. They made an effort when they wrote to be sure to use only Persian root words and to avoid the Arabic words that have crept into the language, and many have. But they were purists, and they kept the Arabic words okay. out of their writing. Do, do they use you, the Arabic uh, alphabet? Uh, the, the alphabet is very similar to the uh, the Arabic okay. alphabet, with some small differences. Okay, but, uh, but the language is 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 Farsi, and also I would mention that they kept um, their ancient faith, Zoroastrianism, which is a monotheistic faith that goes back centuries and centuries. Um, and uh, to this day, they 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 keep the celebration of key. Um, important um, uh, Zoroastrian uh, feast days, like Nowruz. Nowruz being the celebration of the new year, which comes in spring at the at the spring. That's a spring fire. Year. Is that a fire festival? And the fire festival, yes, that is when you will see to this day. I mean, it's discouraged by the uh, the Ayatollahs, uh, but especially the young people will build uh, bonfires. Let's say in uh, I don't know parking lots of apartment buildings and such and and jump over and and the symbolism of that is going from the dark to the light those concepts of the dark and the light uh, the good and the evil the juxtaposition of those things in the zoroastrian faith um actually predates right. you know both um uh, jewish and christian certainly muslim um similar kinds of ideas but that that is zoroastrian that is where that comes from yep so good in the, the faith in Islam uh, evolving uh, equally uh, in the Arab world and the Persian world? Well, after 642 and 643, whatever, I, you they know, were conquered. Days, conquered. So conquest, you, it was so there was no choice. Is that Religion by the, the Arab right. Muslim armies imposed Sunni Islam on the defeated okay. Persians, and they remained Sunni under force um, until about 1500 right. when Turkic. Shiite tribes descended down from the north uh, and conquered Persia once again, and then forcibly, um, uh, under the Shah uh, Ismail, uh, forcibly converted them uh, to Shiite Islam, and that is why Persians, uh, Iranians to this day, um, are majority yeah, so today you have two divisions. You have Arabs versus Persians and Sunni versus Shia. Yes, quite confusing. Now, for the audience, uh, is there any distinguishing factor between the two faiths other than tribes? Not in, not in anything significant. Um, Just the, not the, the, biggest, each other. the biggest differences have to do with belief in the lineage 
or the succession after Muhammad. As we've said, he is reported to have died in 632, and there was a division among his followers as to whom uh, should be the, the, the next uh, leader of the community. The majority, that is today the Sunnis, said we should be able to pick whom we choose. We should be able to decide who, who it is. But the Shiites, Shia Ali is, is, is what that word comes from, the followers of Ali, um, who uh, was cousin and son-in-law to Muhammad, married his daughter Fatima, and uh, their two sons were Hassan and Hussein, um, believed and, and, and fought uh, for, for the idea that it, the, the succession should follow the bloodline, however they lost. And to this day, the Shiites remain the minority. The Sunnis, probably 85 or more percent of all Muslims on earth. Um, but the other differences have to do with things like uh, keeping of shrines, keeping of right. grave sites, especially of the, uh, the, the, the key leadership ima, uh, the, the imams, um, and, and also ceremonies uh, that are held at the shrines and the grave sites. This is anathema in Sunni Islam, uh, but not so in Shiite Islam, things like that. Uh, the reverence and the hierarchy of the clergy within Shiite Islam is not found in Sunni well, Islam. I, I think things that like comes that. from the Zoroastrian the clergy. Items, the things like jihad, Jew hatred, um, you know, the enmity to the Kufar. That's exactly the same. Kufar and I will tell you, by the way, the Iranian constitution explicitly recognizes the four schools major schools of Sunni Islam, Hanafi, Hanbali, um, Maliki, and, and Shafi. And in return, Al-Azhar University, the, uh, the seat of Islamic learning for a thousand years, Sunni Islamic learning in Cairo, Egypt, in 1959 issued a fatwa officially recognizing the legitimacy of Shiite Islam. There you go. So, Do you, so would you say that we would solve this Middle Eastern problem um, uh, in terms of the terror no. and the chaos if the Sunnis actually would uh, win and wipe no, out No, no, well, <laughs> no. No, we're not going to solve anything. Um, we're not going to solve anything okay. at all. Well, Claire, um, Claire if, maybe, um, maybe we can, you can tell world, us. It's not just the Middle East. It's not just... Uh, Claire, maybe you, you know, can tell us, though, the next on. step from the history is really the, the, the idea that it's an international political ideology. Uh, because a lot of times, for example, if you criticize Islam, you're called a racist. And I think that's that's not right. It's, Islam is not a race-based uh, ideology. It, it you know it, Anybody can be a Muslim. That's certainly true. But um, as we've seen, certain buzzwords uh, have taken over uh, the modern lexicon uh, here in the United States and elsewhere in the West. And um, accusations of racism are um, du jour these days yeah. uh, and serve as an all-purpose epithet um, for anybody that you'd like to criticize. doesn't well, really mean anything. What about uh, Islamophobia? I always answer that it's not a phobia if there's a reasonable basis for concern. Well, that is a word that was actually coined uh, by the Muslim Brotherhood at... Um, a, an event uh, in Runnymede in England, in the United Kingdom, um, at the, uh, I believe it's the end of the 1970s, if I'm not mistaken there, on the dates, uh, and later imported uh, to the United States for, again, all-purpose use, um, doesn't actually have a definition that's uh, agreed upon generally. It's simply something to be flung at people um, that, um, you know, they don't... Yeah, divide and conquer approach. 
get us all fighting and arguing so that they get away with their Okay. Now, ways. one other thing I've heard recently is that the FBI during the Obama administration was forced to uh, stop uh, ref- uh, showing any concern for Islam and Islamic terrorism. What do you know about that cleansing? Well, it's it's uh, not, not just the FBI, but um, actually, in fact, beginning in the George W. Bush administration, very shortly after 9-11, as a matter of fact, um, there was the beginning of what many of us call the Great Purge. The Great Purge was the official United States government, uh, all departments, all cabinet departments, um, intelligence community, everything, literal purge of presentations, PowerPoints, syllabuses, syllabi, um, and the instructors that went with them, who previously to that had taught accurate courses uh, about Islam, Jihad, and Sharia. I'm talking about people like John Guendolo, uh, Robert Spencer, uh, Bill Warner, Bill Gothrop, um, names that are probably familiar to many of the listeners. And uh, those were all rejected on the advice of Muslim uh, Brotherhood advisory groups set up to work with each relevant cabinet department, like Department of Homeland Security, well, who Department did of Defense, was that Department the, of State, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Was that and the, the W? Was community, that... They each one of them had a Muslim Brotherhood advisory committee to tell them what to throw out. Was that started during the W administration? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Although, what I will say is that, of course, the Muslim Brotherhood had begun to infiltrate all of American society. Of course, beginning with the Muslim Student Association back in 1964, aimed at academia. Um, and uh, by the time of even the Clinton administration of the 1990s, uh, the Brotherhood had totally penetrated all of American society, but also uh, to the highest levels of the White House. Okay, so here's a place to to talk about uh, Islam is a political ideology of world conquest, and then through two tools, violence and deception. And deception is called taqiyya in the Islamic uh, scriptures, and it is deliberately practiced. Would you agree with that? Well, what I would say is that there is the violent and the kinetic jihad, and there is what Robert Spencer calls the stealth jihad, or Islamic, uh, the Islamic movement might call it dawah. Dawah being a word that means call to Islam, and call to Islam can take many forms that are not violent, but in the United States, led by the vanguard of the Muslim Brotherhood and the rest of the Islamic movement, all of its front groups, um, typically takes the form of sedition and subversion, information operations, um, but our leadership, because of the Great Purge and an entire generation or more of senior leadership in the diplomatic corps, the intelligence services, um, and the military, are uh, completely unaware of any of it. They have been methodically denied uh, that training, that information, and so uh, they are sitting ducks for the uh, information operations coming at them. Whoa. Incredible. And that was deliberate, or you believe it's the... Absolutely deliberate. Absolutely deliberate. And what would, uh, what would uh, be the motivating factor? It's the, it's the it facilitates uh, conquest. Well, the, the no, purpose but who, of who it, in the I State mean, Department, would, who in our right, diplomatic corps would encourage that? To those senior officials back in the Bush administration, let's say, um, 
they had already been subjected successfully to information operations by the Muslim Brotherhood. And you'll remember, of course, I'm sure, President Bush standing uh, in that great big Islamic center of northwest Washington, D.C., just a few days after 9-11, September 2001. And uh, he is intoning very solemnly that Islam is a religion of peace. They've just murdered 3,000 people in New York, Pennsylvania, and, and, uh, and Washington, D.C. And um, if you look at the photos that exist on the Internet to this day of that event, standing around President Bush, completely surrounding him, are members of the most the top leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood in America, including three inches off his left shoulder is Nihad Awad, the top Hamas official in America, uh, executive director of CARE, Council on American-Islamic Relations, which really is Hamas. So what, what, what affected... So they were already influenced, is what I wanted so to say. What affected uh, the Obama election had have? been taken down okay. uh, by subversion. So that was, this is where these stories about the Bushes being married to this, you know, the Saudis comes from. Right. They, if they subject themselves to this, to allow themselves to be used in Muslim propaganda like that, I imagine that video must be circulating all over the Middle East to this very day. And it, it doesn't seem to change much uh, because, you know, the Trump administration also has open-door policy with the Saudis, too. So... You can see where this stuff manifests itself. No, but the itself. Trump administration has been more sensitive to the participation of Muslims in terrorism, like the Muslim ban at the beginning of the administration and other well, steps. I, I, I know I'm, I'm treading on dark territory here because I'm conflating the Muslim Brotherhood with Saudis, and I don't want to make yeah, not necessarily. whatsoever because I don't really have... Well, if I, if, if I could jump in here, there's something very important that's going on. And you're absolutely right, of course, that during the Bush administration, Prince Bandar bin Sultan um, was the Saudi ambassador to the United States for many years and forged a very close relationship uh, with President Bush, which blinded him. Um, Bush is, 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 is a good man with a good heart and a patriot to the, to the core of his being. And an empty but he was head. taken advantage of by a very shrewd, sly um, Saudi um, uh, operator, and that's Bandar. But yeah. now, more recently, what I would say now, um, of course, uh, 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 it's a whole other show, I'm sure, but of course the Saudis, as well as Iran and Hezbollah, as well as Al-Qaeda, of course, were all part of 9-11. But the point that I wanted to make now is that um, in the wake of the rise of the Iranian regime, uh, to the brink of deliverable nuclear weapons, for example, its uh, its belligerence, its its uh, aggression in the region, its support for all manner of Islamic terror groups. Um, the the Saudis and other members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, Gulf states, um, really are scared. They are really afraid, and I think that something happened. Uh, within the, the, the ranks of the OIC, Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the 57-member head of government organization of all Muslim governments in the world, 56 states plus the Palestinian Authority, um, that decided that in order to counter Iran and its threat, its very real and very existential threat, um, not just to Israel, not just to us, but to the Gulf states, and in particular Saudi Arabia. Why? Why well, Saudi Arabia? Because they're the keeper of the two places, Mecca and Medina, and they want to conquer that. So in the face of that threat, I think the decision was taken inside of the OIC 
that the Saudis would take a step backwards. They are no longer in the front role. They used to be supporting mosque building, imam uh, salaries, publications. Wahhabi sect. Still, yes. Wahhabi. But instead of the Saudis, it is the Turks. Watch. Sure. Erdogan is, is, is the head of a neo-Ottoman jihad state. And in the words of a senior uh, foreign um, uh, ministry official of Saudi Arabia, Adel Al-Jaber, just a few days ago, Iran is on a rampage, and it's not going to stop, but neither is Turkey. And if you look at, for example, the annual 500 top most influential list of Muslims in the world, I'm sure you've seen this, put out by the government of Jordan, who's number one for 2019? Who's the top face on that list for 2019? Turkey. Erdogan. It's Erdogan. It's Erdogan. Recipe. So that Egypt explains why Trump is pulling one. back. He did, he's not, well, who knows? Because so, NATO alliance, he's not going to pull back. And he's working directly on U.S. soil with the U.S. Muslim Brotherhood out of a, a hub of operations called the Dianet Center of America, 16-acre site, 12 miles north of the capital here, Washington, D.C., is that, is that in Atlanta, is? Maryland. Isn't there a charter school in those uh, in that vicinity as no, well? No, no, you're mixing up two things. Oh, okay. Uh, what you're thinking of, perhaps, is the network of charter schools that's yes. been established and run by Fatullah Gulen, a Turkish oh. Sunni cleric. Yeah, in the opposition States. of Erdogan. Well, sort of, kind of, except that here in America they work very closely together. Yeah, it's, a, it's really amazing. So uh, is, is that to the benefit of the United States to have Saudi taking a backseat to Turkey, or is it... Uh, an, an, an I asset? think, and this is my, my own opinion, I think that if we deal correctly with the young crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who's 34 years old, I think, right now. And a bloodthirsty if killer. If we deal with him correctly and, and um, uh, in a careful way, I think that we can uh, have somebody to work with in the Middle East. I'm not going to call him an ally. I will call him perhaps a partner. But he is shaking up the kingdom in ways that are unheard of. Uh, women can drive. Um, cinemas are open to men and women to go watch movies. This is unheard of. Women can travel without permission. Um, they, they, they are building a great big humongous new state-of-the-art city called Noom on the upper northwest uh, coast of the Red Sea uh, in Saudi Arabia. Tech hub, tech hub for everything. Um, they, they, are, they are absolutely, these are tectonic plate shifting uh, in Saudi Arabia, and I think that we need to take, a, take advantage of that, take note of that, and work with Mohammed bin Salman, even as we continue to uh, pressure them to improve their human rights record, which is still pretty awful. Now, Claire, how but many years do you give them until... They're heading in the right direction. How many years do you give them until the counter-coup uh, kills him? Well, I think he probably has some very good security, and good thing that he does. Um, politics um, and uh, palace um, relationships are cutthroat in the very literal sense of the word in Saudi Arabia, but he's a smart young guy, and um, I, for one, would like to see him succeed, and I want uh, the United States to help him do it. Okay. Now, what ultimately would be the outcome in terms of what you said earlier with Turkey? Uh, are they going to just let Turkey go on a rampage to defeat the Shiite uh, the Muslims, or are you... Well, 
you don't find it's, that. It's, to... it's, it's kind of a hash right now. Um, so many of the Arabs of the region, including the Saudis, of course, remember the 500 years or so that they were all under the Ottoman yoke until the First World War. They remember this, and they, they don't want to go back there. So there is this um, uh, already, you know, uh, historical um, uh, animosity um, against the Turks. But for the moment, um, Turkey is, is um, advancing. Um, we've seen them carve out a, a chunk of the hide of what used to be out of the carcass of what used to be called Syria. They're going to hang on to that after we help them ethnically cleanse the Kurds there. I think that Erdogan probably will turn next to Cyprus. Why? Because Cyprus is not a member of NATO, uh, but there is a conflict between them and among others, in, in fact, well, in the Mediterranean over drilling rights for natural gas. But don't we have an enormous base there? We're not going to let them do that. I mean, are we have a really, well, really strong well, watch Cyprus is what I will say. Watch Cyprus. They are going to pressure them. They're going to go after them to, to try to bully them into letting Turkey drill in Cypriot waters for natural gas. Yep. Oh, okay, That's so not, not necessarily conquest of landmass, but... No, they've already well, they divided already Cyprus. the northern part a long time ago, right? right? Yeah, but it's, a small, it's a, the smallest portion of the two. Yeah, but they, they're in there. They have a foothold. What I'm saying is this will be incremental. This will be step-by-step. Step. This will be milestones, if you will. Hmm. And the, right. But the Greeks, the Greeks should be opposing that, right? Well, I don't think the Greeks well, the Greek say. Well, certainly would if it comes to their waters. Yeah, but remember... And the... Greece is a member of NATO. Right. So I think Turkey would not turn against Greece right away, but see how far he can get with... Um, a small non-NATO country like, like Cyprus. Okay, but I've been telling people, no more did Hitler stop with the Sudetenland right. than Erdogan is going to stop with the Kurds. Right. One thing to keep in mind is that Greece is one of the few NATO countries that actually spends 2% of its GDP, whatever that GDP may be. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So there's, yep. they, they have a reason to do that. Significant, yes. People yeah. remember, it's not that long ago, 100 years ago, barely, uh, that, that the Armenian genocide took place, and it wasn't just Armenian Christians. It was Greek Orthodox and a- anything else Christian uh, that, that the Turks obliterated. Yes, that's, a, that's the Holocaust that nobody talks about. Right. Yes. I guess you can't Although I will give credit to the, um, the Democrat um, majority, House of Representatives, which finally, very recently, passed a re- resolution acknowledging the Armenian genocide and criticizing Turkey for it. Yeah, except for one congresswoman from Minnesota. <laughs> well, yes, she has her reasons, I'm sure. Well, I would like uh, I would like to invite you again. Uh, this has been very uh, thought-provoking from my perspective. I'm sure the audience really enjoyed this. And obviously, Thank this you. Is good. Uh, I would like to have you back. I uh, hope you, uh, you'll find it somewhat entertaining, our, our jest. Uh, um, we did our best here. You're very informed, and I, I thank you for what you've taught me tonight. You're welcome, and Th- I'll be glad to come back. Thank you very much, Claire. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. Thank you. That was All right, fantastic. so that lays the foundation for uh, some of our other callers. No, and for our thought process, we're getting kudos for actually thinking clearly, and I. Uh, it's always important that 
you understand that uh, our audience understands that we are c concrete conservatives, but somewhat unknowledgeable about other things. You're listening well. to WSUF Blink Radio in Key Biscayne, Florida, where the concrete conservatives, Ed Vidal, marvelous, victorious Ed Vidal, and I'm not going to rock. So we're gonna, our next caller is... Well, we'll see. It should be Bill Warner, and he... There he goes. Damn, well, you Just have control perfect. of Bill or what? Yeah. Bill under your ring. He is very uh, attentive. Bill Warner. This is the Concrete Conservative, WSQF 94.5. You're live on the air. Is this Bill Warner? Hi. No, this is Jamie Ligator. Jay oh, Jamie Ligator. Jamie, how are you? You sent me that email by mistake. Maybe I wasn't supposed to call. Well, you know, uh, guess what? You know, you have such a fantastic book that Ed has not finished yet. That perhaps, yeah, we were gonna we were talking about Islam today, and uh, we had you on recently about the police state. Yeah. So uh, yeah, today's today's Islam day. It's kind of a different type of police state. But we'll fine, have you that's back. That's fine. That's fine. Don't worry. With me, you can tell me anything you want. Well, actually, oh, now we have you on. We're making the claim that we can officially pronounce here because we can. That Islam is a political ideology, not a faith, and therefore we should teach it, and teach it as such, and uh, combat it as such. And the previous caller made strong claims that Saudi Arabia has taken a backseat to Turkey in how they're going to deal with Iran. And uh, our previous caller felt that it was to the benefit of the United States to concentrate on Saudis, let Turkey do their thing to some degree because they're NATO but concentrate on the modernization of Saudi Arabia because this young prince apparently is really uh, bringing... Bl bloodthirsty young prince. Yeah, he's bringing Saudi Arabia into the more modern way, so right. more Western-style We've seen that many times before. It hasn't worked. It doesn't work. He, uh, Ed thinks that they're, they're just going to kill the prince if he advances any further because he's giving women a lot of rights. What do you think about that? I think the United States is uh, in trouble no matter what it does. Uh, Turkey is definitely not a friend, even though they are in NATO. They will look for every possible occasion to stab the United States in the back. And the truth is that if Saudi Arabia didn't need us, they would do the same. Yes, uh, and you think arming the Saudis at this time was uh, a very convenient truth? <laughs> it seems like we have no choice at this moment, but it's bad choices. As, can I go back in history and tell you about some of the bad deci pol uh, policy decisions that the United States has made? I want to remind you that Castro came into Cuba because the United States decided to turn its back on Batista. Right. I want to remind you that in Panama, Noriega was our best friend. We pushed zillions of dollars on him until he wasn't our friend. Yeah, we definitely, uh, abandoned, I, we definitely I, have I, a history of abandoning our allies. We have a history of picking the wrong side and make, making the wrong decisions at the wrong time. The Shah of Iran was one of our best friends in the Middle East, and Jimmy Carter abandoned him, as simple as that. I don't know if you remember that. Yes, we do. Mm -hmm. Not so and much remember it, but I the, the great regime that they have in Iran right now. Yes, the nightmares of Jimmy Carter are, are between him and Kennedy. I don't know who 
who we suffer more from. Obama. <laughs> yeah. Well, the list goes on without end. How do you think the Sandinistas got in Nicaragua? Well, we he heard... Decided. Wait, wait, time out. I got a surprise for you. On this show, it was disclosed to us by Raymond Molina, a Bay of Pigs veteran, who says that it was actually Mexican-American CIA operatives who not only funded but influenced the Sandinistas to power Nicaragua against Somoza. How about them apples? Well, that could be a contributing part, but the fact of the matter is that we just turned against Somoza because the thinking of the time was, no, we cannot support a dictator. So we just withdrew, just like we did with Castro. We just took away all help, um, uh, weapons, ammunition, money from Somoza, and that's what we got, the Sandinistas. What can you do? And yeah, well, Raymond worked really close uh, with the Somoza family. He knew them personally, engaged in them. He started uh, his er in his early years before he was uh, entertaining these uh, opportunities to, to work with the CIA. They were apparently had him in their sights and they kept on trying to recruit him and he was uh, uh started off as a banker and he was helping somoza develop parts of managua i believe after an earthquake that was there and uh i don't know too much about the earthquake but uh, the timing uh seemed to be perfect for the cia to say hey now that you've developed this relationship with the family uh we're going to start proposing to them that there'd be a place for our operatives to train for this ultimate, what ultimately became the Bay of Pigs invasion. But uh, it's, uh, I'd like you to look into this Mexican-American CIA influence within Hey, the, I will. That could be, uh, it'd be really interesting if you could find out something we haven't found out. But uh, it's always been uh, something to, to consider because I definitely never heard any angle like that but he was here live and physically in our studio telling us this so anyway we're going to let you go I'm glad you uh, lend your hand hey, in here hey. uh, we have another caller I'm sure is waiting to, to talk about Islam but, okay it's great to talk to you now, remember uh, you can always hear us from where you're at at wsufradio.com yes I do thank you alrighty take care and call again bye alrighty so, hey, that means we got enthusiasm going on, and that means that uh, Ed Vidal is actually uh, like a talent agent. You've got so many callers calling in. you got so many emails going on that everybody's calling no matter what. They're just so excited to speak to you. Yes. Well, yes, yes. well they know that this uh, show is a, a gateway to stardom. Uh, I believe so. Um, there's, you know, starting with me, of course, right? Yes. Uh, I, I do my best. Remember, I'm the only one that really has a, a chance at stardom because, you know, Ed's like 75, 85 years old. How old are you, Ed? Almost, yes. Yeah. And there's something about Ed. He keeps on coming here, and I have no idea why there's like no, other than the fact that it, the shirt is red, but he keeps on showing up with a Stanford shirt on. And he didn't go to Stanford. He has no, I don't think it was your first girlfriend uh, from Stanford. No, no. Nothing like that. And uh, I don't know, or maybe he's, you know, maybe he's a gigolo and he hasn't told us. I don't know. He, uh, I don't know. Something he, he does bring his Texas belt. So that hasn't changed much, except for now the red hat is no longer. Now it's the NRA. I have an NRA uh, camouflage cap, yes. Okay, so Mr. Warren, if you're out there, please give us a call. Well, I think what he was going to, uh, he's a, a member of the Institute for the Study of Political Islam. 
So he's going to really make. So my question for him is, what other kind of Islam is there? I think Islam is intrinsically a political ideology of world conquest through violence and deception, as we discussed. And then now, will you make the claim that Muhammad is fictitious? Well, uh, that's I've had a history professor at the University of Chicago who had just given a talk about Muhammad. And I didn't think he was fictitious. I went up to him and I asked him, well, did Muhammad do this or that? He looked at me and he said, well, Muhammad never existed. And so it's somebody who has spent 40 years studying the Muslim scriptures. He can read Arabic. Well, if he didn't exist, then then all he was made up. It's like Sherlock Holmes. But there's a lot of things that come out of Muhammad's. The multiple wives issue. Yeah, absolutely. Marrying, marrying children. Yes. All that stuff. Those were all made up. And it tells you what kind of an ideology it is that when they were given an opportunity to make up uh, a messenger, uh, this is how they made him up. Now, the audience should know that in the Quran, Mary, Virgin Mary, and Jesus are mentioned 26 sure, times more they, than Muhammad. And they say that Jesus did not go to the cross. That he sent somebody else. Oh, really? Yes. So there you go. Like it's a, a body double? Body double. I thought, I thought only the Clintons did that. Simon of Cyrene, for example, who carried the cross, uh, who's compelled to carry the cross. So somebody like that. So that, well, that is part. Found on Cyrus here. Well, uh, Simon of Cyrene. Well, in, the, in the New Testament, it talks about how Jesus was forced to carry his cross. Right. And uh, I guess he had been already been flogged. And he was kind of delirious, He's and so, and the Roman soldiers compelled uh, somebody standing by, saying, "Here, help him carry that cross." So there you are. Maybe this will be built. This is WSQF ninety four five, the Concrete Conservative. If this, I hope, is built, and I believe it's absolutely no one. Hello, oh, the, who who rang the the phone? I don't know. It was a mystery liberal. Hello, Bill? Bill, can you hear us? Bill? Bill might be on a cell phone. I found my Bill. Hello, is this Bill Warner from the uh, Political Islam uh, Study Center? Hello? Bill, call back. I think your cell phone is coming through. But anyway, I think we'll have to talk to him about that because... Uh, Islam is we actually a, have to talk about a cell phone provider. Okay, <laughs> I don't know who it is, but uh, see, for example, Michael Flynn was head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and I think one of the reasons that all the other intelligence agencies came after him was because he figured out and he proclaimed that Islam is a fake religion. The Michael Flynn, Michael General Michael Flynn, is a oh, part of his. So he was one of the few guys. Who, uh, from so he the, really pissed off the world. He pissed the off, and it also, and President Obama. Well, and no, and Trump brings him back to life. He absolutely. President Obama, and then his Muslim CIA director, John Brennan, a Muslim communist. So that's part of why they went after him. Hello, Bill. Bill, you're listening to WSQF. You're live on the air, 94.5 Blink Radio, Key Game, the Concrete Conservative Hour. And for some reason, we can't get Bill. What's the matter, Bill? Are you there? Bill, Bill, Bill. Uh, Bill, thrill. I'm sorry, Bill. I don't know if you can keep on calling, or is, I don't know if it's our phone system, or it's you, or it's us. I see okay, well, I... Carl Goldberg here. Hello? Carl. 
Carl. Hello, this is Carl Goldberg calling. Oh, great. You're with the Institute for the Study of the Ideology of Islam. Hello. Hello, Carl. Carl, can you hear us or no? It's Carl Goldberg talking. Not yes, can, but can you hear Hello. us? Because we're having difficulty hearing you. Can you hear us, Carl? For some reason, they can't hear us. Well, our callers are out of order, but that's no big deal. I don't know if I can uh, maybe call Carl and see if this thing changes here. Um, they might be texting you. I don't know. What Let's see. Uh, call back. Maybe? I can't take a, a phone call, but. Uh, well, very sorry about this. This is you know the life of community radio when you don't have screeners like a, an employee. Snurdly. A snurdly. You don't have snurdly. I don't have a snurdly. I've been, trying to get you, I've been trying to get you a, an intern from the University of Miami School of Communications. Yes, and they don't communicate too well. You brought me once a Chinese guy when I told him I was a concrete conservative. He was from China, and he ran He out bolted of, out? He bolted he out. Said he said he's he a communist? He left his resume. Before I could even read it, he was gone. But uh, uh, Mr. Goldberg, I don't know, we just had a, a successful call-in, so I don't know why he's having difficulty. From Costa Rica. Yeah, I mean, Exactly. And he was the author of that book a couple weeks ago called The Police State, where he was falsely accused by the federal government of participating in a phone scam because the person they arrested. Manny, I I hear from our uh, devoted audience that your voice is too uh, distant. Yes. So that means that this experiment, this experiment of... uh, There we go. This experiment with the microphones is not working, but I'm speaking as close to the microphones as I can. And I uh, even switched out the microphone. WSQF, Blink Radio. Hi, it's Carl Goldberg calling. Uh, you guys got problems with your phones here. What? Uh, can you hear us now? I can hear you now. Okay, and Carl. Loud and clear. Go ahead, Ed. Uh, you, um, my name is Mac, Ed Vidal, Concrete Conservative. Hi, Carl. Thank you for calling. We had Claire Lopez on earlier. Yeah, uh, uh, there's a problem with your phone system, by the way. It's very difficult to get through to you, but in any case, I, I'm glad we're here now. Yes. Well, we. So, uh, well, thank uh, you. Uh, yes, I've been uh, listening in here, and, and uh, I would like to uh, talk a little bit about uh, this Islam as a fake religion. Go ahead. Uh, in my opinion, this is not the way to go about convincing other people. Uh, Islam uh, meets all of the definitions, standard definitions of religion, whether we like it or not. Right. I mean, it's got a supernatural God, it's got angels, it's got a devil, uh, it's got uh, sacred texts. It, so it meets all of the definitions uh, that's accepted by the worldwide linguistic community of being a religion. Uh, but in addition to that, it is also, as you say, an international political ideology. And the ideology for Muslims uh, as it comes from their God. That's what makes it so terribly strong. So it's a, re- it's a, a political ideology in the cloak of religion. Uh, but it is a religion also. So I don't think we get uh, make any progress educating our fellow citizens by saying that it's a fake religion. Uh, it's not going to convince anybody. What we have to do is show our fellow citizens how Islam is fundamentally different from all other religions because it is a political ideology and it happens to be also a totalitarian and imperialist ideology, like. given religious covering. 
Does that make sense? Yes. I like that part when you said totalitarian at the end. I, that's consistent with us. And imperialist. Well, it is. And, and uh, you know, I've got uh, lots of quotations from the Islamic religious sources telling us that politics is part and parcel of Islam. There. That uh, Islam is a complete way of life. You'll even hear the Council on American-Islamic Relations saying that Islam was a complete way of life. Well, complete, of course, is total. Right. And uh, others will say it's a complete code of life, which means it's a law code, and they're referring to Sharia law. Uh, and, and it covers all aspects of life from birth to death. That's what they tell us. I'm not... That's right. not my opinion. And, and there's no separation. Uh, 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 what the Islamic religious authorities say, they also call it a comprehensive ideology. Right. And I have a quotation from uh, uh, an Islamic religious authority of oh, a couple decades ago, uh, where he calls it an authoritarian and even totalitarian right. uh, legal system. And this is what I think we need to be uh, emphasizing when we speak to our fellow citizens about it, that uh, Islam, yes, it's a religion, but it's fundamentally different from other religions, and here's why. And, and the why, is, of course, is that it is a comprehensive totalitarian ideology. And in addition to being totalitarian, it's also imperialist, because as we all know, uh, the goal of Islam is to take over the whole world. Uh, it says so in the Koran and Muhammad it says so. Uh, you see all of these statements saying that uh, we must fight the non-unbelievers uh, until Islam reigns supreme in the world. Well, that's what imperialism is. Uh, and so we need to stress the fact that Islam is both totalitarian and imperialist uh, in addition to being a religion. We can't say it's not a religion. It is a religion, but it is also a uh, totalitarian and imperialist ideology. I think that's the way to reach people. Okay, no, uh, I agree. I will, I will give you that. Now, let me ask you, why yep. hasn't uh, the Western leadership, including the U.S. government, realized what you're saying? No, of course not. Uh, they don't. Uh, that's why we have so much educational work to do, but we need to do it in the right way. Uh, if, if we simply say that Islam is a fake religion, no one's going to listen to us. You know, it, it may or may not be fake, but that's irrelevant. What's important is that uh, one and a half billion Muslims believe it, and then whether Muhammad existed also is not important, because people believe he existed, and people act on what they believe, not what reality actually is. Uh, and so we simply take it for granted that this is the way people believe, and we need to convince our fellow citizens, not that Muhammad didn't exist, but that people believe they have to follow Muhammad, who said to conquer the world for Islam. I, I think that's a better way of going about okay, it. Okay, no, I, I stand corrected. So why don't you tell what what can we do, what practical steps can we do to convince very good point. That's what I've been uh, trying to work on. How do we reach a wider audience? Because we actually—that's our biggest barrier—is reaching out for a wider audience. Uh, I've been trying to use Facebook groups as much as possible to post on those Facebook groups. And if I had help doing that, we could reach thousands of Facebook groups with bits of information about Islam. Uh, not too much at one time. Under two hundred or 250 words maximum. Otherwise, people won't read it. But if you get it in, under those, uh, that limit, people will read it, and the Facebook groups have many times thousands of members, so their members will be alerted to the fact that there is this posting about Islam. That's one major way to how reach you, out. How are you doing on Facebook? 
Uh, so well, uh, I think it's it's okay, but there are sometimes problems. Uh, lately, they were they've been suspending me, claiming I'm going too fast in the posting. Well, uh, they never say how fast is too fast. So, we, but we have to keep trying, and we need lots of people doing this. I mean, there are literally thousands of Facebook groups that we need to be posting to, and they're cons- mainly the conservative groups. It's useless to try posting to the Democrat and the and the left wing groups. Doesn't make any difference they won't they won't accept it but uh, we need to educate the conservatives who are at this moment spineless and relatively ignorant about islam uh, but, but they're receptive to it and so if we get them the right way there's a good chance that they will at least listen to us if we present it in the right way and in short pieces uh, so as not to uh, uh, turn them off so Facebook is one way. Twitter is another way. I've not used that because I'm kind of technologically challenged. But uh, that's another way that we can certainly use it. And we have to be careful when we do these postings not to uh, post it in terms of uh, giving our opinions that the Islam is, is, is nasty and evil and so on. We know that it is. But that's not going to convince people. We need to quote the Islamic sources, to quote the Koran. We need to quote Muhammad, and we need to quote the Islamic religious authorities who are accepted in the Islamic religious community as authorities. Use everything in their words, not in our own words. And, and I think that's much more effective, much more authoritative than for us simply to give our own opinion, uh, because uh, we are not qualified as Islamic scholars, but we are qualified to tell people what the Islamic scholars say. Uh, because this uh, information is all translated by the Islamic religious community into English, and so uh, we have a right to assume that they're translating it correctly. They're translating it. They're using these books. For example, the uh, most popular manual of Sharia law, Reliance of the Traveler, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, it's used in American mosques, and it was approved as a guide to Sunni Muslims uh, in the mid-'90s by the highest Islamic religious authorities of Saudi Arabia, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, and America. So it's authoritative. And as I say, it is used in American mosques. And we need to point out to our fellow citizens what exactly is in that book. And my goodness, there's a tremendous amount of stuff that that we ought to know about. First and foremost is their definition of jihad. It says very plainly in that book that jihad means to make war on non-Muslims. This is the basis of uh, of Islam, essentially, and it is in their books. It's their definition. We are not simply leveling some sort of a nasty accusation against Islam. We are quoting what they say about their own religion. So, uh, in, in my opinion, that's the way to go about educating people, and not just educating anybody. For uh, especially, we need to educate the Republican Party. Because, so, look, if they're uh, so we clear, have a party system, whether we like it or not, yep. and one party, the Democrats, is already in the pocket of the Muslim Brotherhood. We know that. So, there's no way that they will ever take any steps necessary to defend us from the Islamic threat. The only other party is the Republicans, and they don't know much about Islam, and they're they're generally cowardly. We need to educate them. We need to get into the Republican Party, become precinct committeemen, precinct captains, where uh, I understand uh, from an activist here in Phoenix 
that there are about 400,000 Republican precincts in the United States, and only about 200,000 have precinct committeemen or precinct captains. In other words, there's about 200,000 vacancies in the Republican Party apparatus. We need to fill them as much as possible in order to begin... Uh, promoting Republican candidates who understand about Islam and, and who are willing to take action. For example, as you know, we've had uh, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood Terrorist Designation Act bill before both houses of Congress for, I believe, five years. Uh, or four years at least since 2015. It's not going anywhere because it doesn't have anywhere near enough sponsors because the Republicans don't sponsor it. Many of the Republicans don't even know about it. But we need to educate them about it. Uh, in other words, uh, because we have only a two-party system and one party is, uh, is, is already in the pocket of the Muslims, the only other party that is available to us is the Republicans, and we have to use all of our efforts to work through the Republican Party to... Uh, not just to get them into office. We need to do that, obviously, too, but we need to educate them so that uh, they will, in fact, begin to take action against uh, the Muslim threat, the Islamic threat. Two things need to be done. First, we need to pass that uh, Muslim Brotherhood Terrorist Designation Act. Uh, after all, as you know, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood has already been declared a terrorist organization by at least five countries, four of which are Muslim countries. So they must know something about the Muslim Brotherhood that a lot of people here don't know about it, but we need to educate them about it. And the second thing, of course, which President Trump has begun to do to a significant extent uh, is to uh, block and prohibit the, in, uh, the uh, immigration of Muslims to America. And we need to explain to people why that is necessary, because the Muslims claim to be Muslims. They bring with them this religion ideology which calls for an eventual overthrow of the American system and a making of an Islamic Republic in the United States as well as the rest of the world. Uh, people need to understand that. And uh, uh, it's our job to educate them wherever possible. We have to be careful also of not preaching too much to the choir because we can talk until we're blue in the face to one another, and we all agree on this, but if we don't expand our numbers, we're going to lose. Uh, okay, the now... Uh I, I, it's useless. An independent party is, is, is out of the question. We have a two-party system, and all we can do with an independent party is take votes away from the Republicans. I don't think we want to do that. Yeah. Carl, Carl, if the Muslims are so clear about their intentions and their beliefs, then why do people have so much trouble believing them? I'm sorry, could you say that again? Yeah, if the Muslims are so clear and open yeah. about their beliefs and their intentions then why do people have trouble taking them seriously and believing them? Well, it's partly they, they, they don't know what the Muslim intentions are. They really are ignorant. There's an abysmal ignorance of Islam, first of all, in the United States. Uh, second of all, uh, people are basically, Americans are, are very good-hearted, and they don't want to criticize somebody else's religion. They think that Islam is a religion like other religions. And that's why I started out uh, just a few moments ago saying we have to disabuse them of that notion and show them that Islam is not a religion like other religions, not calling it a fake religion, but calling it a 
totalitarian and uh, imperialist ideology in addition to being a religion. That's what makes Islam fundamentally different from other religions, and that's the point we need to get across to people. Once they understand that we're dealing with a totalitarian and imperialist ideology and not just the religion, they might be responsive because they many people vaguely remember that we dealt with uh, fascism, Nazism, and communism as totalitarian and imperialist ideologies, so they can understand something about ideology. Uh, they don't understand about religion because they've never studied Islam, and so they think that, well, Islam is a religion, so it must be something like the religions we're familiar with. Uh, of course, they're mistaken completely, and we need to show them why they are mistaken. that we need to be very active in now is opposing every Muslim candidate for public office. Uh, in the last election, 54 Muslims got elected to public office, at least 54 that I'm aware of, uh, and we, all we hear about is Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, uh, uh, but there are lots more. Uh, I understand there are at least two towns in New Jersey that have Muslim mayors. They control the police departments, of course, and uh, other states are now have uh, Muslim state legislators. The Attorney and, General and, uh, of Minnesota. Pardon? The Attorney General of Minnesota. Uh, I, I'm having a hard time hearing you. The Attorney General of Minnesota is a Muslim. Yes, yes, yes that's Keith Ellison. Yes, right. he gave up his seat to Ilhan Omar, so he became the Attorney General, and he's you can be sure he's not going to prosecute Muslim terrorists in, in Minnesota. And he's going to do what he can to criminalize criticism of Islam if he can get away with it. So, yes, it's extremely dangerous. Uh, and so we need to oppose all Muslim candidates, and we need to tell people why. Uh, because obviously when they say they're Muslims, it means they believe that the Koran is their God's literal word and that they have to follow Muhammad. That's the basis of, of Muslim belief. So what? And, and, and okay. as long as they believe that, we have a right to question them on that, and we've forced them to answer, if we can possibly confront them, uh, to, to answer that they must repudiate specific jihadist verses in the Koran. They yep. will never do that. But we need to force them, and we need to show people that they will not repudiate okay. the jihadist verses in the Koran, and therefore they should not be trusted. Okay. Uh, they, 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 they take that the shahada 
Shahada Oath, which is a double allegiance, allegiance to Allah and allegiance to Muhammad. And, and then all we need to do is see what Allah and Muhammad actually stand for, right. and then we connect these Muslims to what Allah and Muhammad stand for, and we show that that contradicts our Declaration of Independence and it contradicts our Constitution. So we can show that their ideology that they subscribe to, uh, in fact, violates our Constitution, and there's no reason why we should accept such people into this country or vote them into office. Okay, so during the Cold War... direction that I think we ought to be taking to show our fellow citizens that Muslims who profess to be Muslims necessarily cannot be loyal to the United States. And by the way, there's an excellent quotation from the highest Islamic religious authority in the United States, which is the Assembly of Muslim Jurists of America, where they say... They say that it, there's an irreconcilable contradiction between allegiance to Islam and allegiance to America. They tell us that. Right. And we need to quote them. Otherwise, we just come across as being nasty, and then people won't accept it. But if we quote them, uh, there's a much greater chance that people will listen to us because that will be authoritative. Uh, do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah, but, uh, won't you have the... The religious defenders of religious freedom all over us, and we well, won't but, win. A, but but, we but that's why we said we can't it, win this. That's contest. why we said that it's not just well, a religion. That, that's it's a good point, and we need to respond about this notion of religious freedom. That in fact, religious freedom in the United States is circumscribed right. and limited, just like freedom of speech is. It, it's not absolute. Religious freedom is fine as long as it does not violate American law. And so right. Muslims are not free to practice their religion because their religion requires them to violate American law. So Muslims right. can practice part of their religion, those parts of the religion that don't violate American law. They can do that. Uh, they don't have to uh, drink alcohol. They don't have to eat pork products and then all kinds of other things that they're permitted to do because it doesn't violate American law. But those aspects of Sharia which do violate American law, they're not permitted to do that, and therefore they don't have full freedom of their religion. And, uh, yeah, that's well, that's well said. Yep. Yeah. Uh, there's statements by uh, uh, Syed Qutb, you know, the ideologue of the yep. Muslim Brotherhood, mm -hmm. uh, where uh, he says that they that Muslims are striving for freedom. Well, what he means by freedom is the freedom to practice Sharia law and not man-made law. That's right. another concept that we need to get across, that they have a very different notion of freedom than we do, even though they use the same words. And there are other words that they use that we use, but they have totally different meanings. Uh, for example, take the word justice. You know, when uh, Obama went uh, to give, give his speech to the so-called Muslim world in Cairo in 2009, uh, he said that we have so much in common with Islam, like, for example, the concept of justice. Well, that's BS. Uh, because what does justice mean? Justice means a system of rewards and punishments based on the law, the accepted law. And so American justice is rewards and punishments based on American law. Islamic justice is rewards and punishments based on Islamic law. And all we need to do is show the tremendous contradiction between American law and Islamic law to show that their concept of justice totally violates our concept of justice, in fact, because it's, it's based on totally different uh, sets of laws. So we need to explain these things logically to uh, whoever we come in contact with. 
and we need to come in contact with a lot more people than we have been doing. We tend to speak to one another, to preach to the choir, uh, and, and that is not going to give us much hope in defeating the uh, Islamic stealth jihad, as uh, uh, Claire just mentioned, or what the Muslim brother called, called the civilizational jihad. It's in their program, as you know, the documents that the FBI discovered about uh, 10 or 12 years ago, uh, where it talks about uh, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and settlement, uh, that is Muslim immigration, uh, into the United States for the purpose of conducting the civilizational jihad, that is subverting our institutions in order to uh, essentially destroy our system. Uh, it's all in their documents. All we need to do is quote their documents <laughs> and then quote their, res uh, their uh, respective uh, uh, texts, the sacred texts, and their Islamic religious authorities. Uh, there's so much that they have told us uh, that we need to make our fellow citizens aware of. And I just hope that we can do that. I hope that you can do that on your radio show and reach out to the people who don't already know this stuff. And, uh, now, do that, you suggest are, that, that the Muslims that are already here are grandfathered in? <laughs> no. Are they, uh, well, what, what do you do with do, someone uh, who's uh, born uh, here? Uh, what we need to do is make our public aware of uh, how Islam contradicts our American way of life. And to do that, we need to get into the textbooks that are used in our schools and show how our textbooks are, in fact, propagating uh, Islam. That they're indoctrinating our school children in Islam. If we can get the textbook publishers and the school principals and the teachers to understand that they are in fact undermining America by promoting Islam, uh, maybe they will stop promoting well, Islam. Now wait a minute. Wait a minute. But uh, there's nothing we can do about the Muslims who are already here uh, except to prosecute them when they step out of line too far, like if they uh, okay. murder, uh, commit honor killings, or, or that sort of thing. Uh, okay, Carl, but we'll hold on a minute. Now, there's one other thing that, in fact, we might be able to do in the future, but the country's not ready for it, and that is uh, it concerns freedom of speech. That the freedom of speech, as you know, is also circumscribed. You're not allowed, for example, to incite violence. Well, what about the Koran? What about all of those hadiths of Muhammad, which do incite violence? Uh, is it only a matter of interpretation? Well, all of the Muslim terrorists, they think that these texts incite violence because they commit violence and quote the texts in order to justify their violence. And so there's a good case to be made that these texts, including the Koran, incite violence. Then we can begin taking action against those mosques and imams that promote this stuff, the Koran and these hadiths. But that's something for the future. Someone needs to bring a text, uh, test case into court on the basis of freedom of speech, because they do incite violence. All right, Carl, what, what do you make of this alliance between the progressive socialists on the one hand and the Muslim jihadists on the other? Uh, we, we see it in America where the progressives are very permissive of Muslims, jihadists, uh, both in Congress and at the attorney general's level, for example, in not only Minnesota, but also in New Jersey. Uh, there's a Muslim attorney general appointed by the governor. And yes. so it's, it seems like uh, they well, have an alliance. A very important question here. Uh, how can it be that the leftists and the Muslims 
essentially are allied with one another. Because if you look at what they actually stand for, you would think they would be at loggerheads with one another. Uh, the, the leftists want to totally separate religion from state and suppress religion. The Muslims want a theocracy. Yep. Because Islam is a complete way of life that covers all aspects of life, including politics and government and everything else. Uh, the leftists want total gender equality, and Islam prohibits gender equality. Right. Verse 434 of the Quran says very clearly that men are created superior to women, and women must be obedient to the men. Uh, so that there's no way that Islam can ever have gender equality. Uh, the leftists want total equality for homosexuals and, and various other deviants. Um, Muslims want to kill them. And so you would think that the Muslims and the leftists w would be enemies with one another, but uh, they have an alliance. And they, it's called the Red-Green Alliance, or as uh, David Horwood said in a book about this very subject called the Unholy Alliance, I think he wrote it about 10 years ago, it's the alliance between the leftists and the Muslims. And what makes them allies, first of all, they are both totalitarian, they are both collectivist as opposed to individualist, and they are both determined to bring down the Judeo-Christian American notion of freedom and capitalism. Uh, and that, of course, brings bring down Israel also. So they agree on all of these things. And, and that's what makes them temporary allies, like we were temporary allies of Stalinist Soviet Union 80 years ago, uh, because we were fighting the common enemy of Nazism. It doesn't mean we like one another, uh, but it means that we are fighting a common enemy. And so the Muslims and the leftists are fighting the common enemy of American freedom and uh, capitalism and Judeo-Christian morality. That's the common enemy. Uh, if and when, God forbid, the American system is overthrown, there's going to be all hell breaking loose between the Muslims and the leftists, because the Muslims uh, disagree with the leftists on everything else. Uh, and frankly, my money's on the Muslims because they're much more ruthless and they're much better organized. The leftists are going to, of course, suffer even when that time comes, but they don't know that yet. The leftists think they're going to win. Now, do you, do you... They both think they're going to win. Yeah. Um, what, I, what I wanted to say is, what, what is it that you uh, can repeat to the audience where you gave the actual verse in the Quran where Sharia comes before nation, before the country, which is the antithesis of our Constitution, which is the grounds for limiting their immigration into the United States? You, you, you just read... Uh, I believe a passage from the Quran. Is that so? Well, uh, the passage that I uh, quoted was about how men are created superior to women and women must obey the men. There are other passages in the Quran which also subordinate women legally. So it's very clear there can be no gender equality, which means no equality before the law uh, of men and women, uh, if Islam is actually followed. Now, there may be some Muslim countries that don't follow uh, Islamic law. In fact, there are lots of them. Uh, there are these moderate Islamic countries that follow only a little bit of Sharia, uh, Sharia law. And the Muslim Brotherhood and the organizations uh, like uh, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Al-Shabaab, and, and Boko Haram, they all want to make these countries more Islamic. That's what's going on in Afghanistan now. Uh, you've got the Taliban and the Afghan population. They all agree that Sharia law should be the basis of their law. Even our Afghanistan does that, uh, the, the, our Afghanistan government, and we help draw up their constitution. You know, the, the 
official name of our Afghanistan is the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan uh, because it's based on Sharia law. The difference between the Afghan government and the Taliban is that the Taliban wants a lot more Sharia law than the, the Afghan government wants. They, but they all acknowledge the authority of Sharia law. And this is true of other countries as well. Even Egypt, which of course is, is uh, uh, one of the major countries against the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, they also have some Sharia law in their law, but uh, not anywhere near enough to satisfy the Muslim Brotherhood. And the, the, you find the Muslim Brotherhood also wanting to overthrow the Saudi monarchy. Uh, the Saudis used to be big supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, in the last few years, they're not. They've also declared the Muslim Brotherhood to be a terrorist organization because the Muslim Brotherhood thinks that the Saudis are not Islamic enough. So they want to overthrow the Saudi monarchy and institute a real Islamic republic. Uh, now, do you think uh, Obama's intents were nefarious when he basically created the uprising uh, in Egypt for the Muslim Brotherhood to actually win elections? Yes, yes. Uh, Obama was a big supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood. No question about it. But he's, he's not the only one. It started with Bush before him and perhaps even with Clinton before that. Uh, bringing Muslim Brotherhood members into the government, bringing them into positions of influence in the government as advisors or uh, bureaucrats in the Department of Defense and uh, God knows where else. And then, of course, uh, under Obama, it became official that all of the training programs in the government, uh, Defense Department, Securities Department, and so on, that all of the training had to eliminate any reference uh, that connected Islam with violence or terrorism, any reference to Islamic ideology. They didn't even talk about radical Islam anymore because that somehow still points half a finger at Islam. Uh, it's better than nothing to say radical Islam, but, uh, but the, you know, there, there's, if you study it, you see that it's illogical. There is no such thing as radical Islam. And then we have Turkish President Erdogan, who so famously said that there's no such thing as moderate or immoderate Islam. Islam is Islam, and that's it. Well, he knows more about Islam, and as uh, Claire mentioned a while ago, he's listed as the top uh, of the 500 most important Muslims in the world. Uh, we ought to take him seriously. Uh, there is no such thing as radical Islam or moderate Islam, and the reason is the Koran does not come in radical or moderate versions. Islam is the belief system based on the Koran and on the Sunnah. Uh, they don't come in radical or moderate versions, and therefore uh, you cannot have a radical Islam or a moderate Islam. You can have radical Muslims and moderate Muslims. Radical Muslims are the ones who follow Islam closely, right. and moderate Muslims are those who deviate to a significant yeah. degree from the jihadist uh, commands of Islam. They're lapsed uh, Muslim, right? Lapsed? Uh, well, they're Muslims uh, because they still uh, claim allegiance to Allah and Muhammad, so they have not been, uh, they haven't crossed the line of apostasy, uh, but uh, they officially don't support jihad, they don't support total loyalty to the worldwide Muslim community, uh, they don't support the mandatory nation of, uh, nature of Sharia law, uh, so they, but they'll never stand up and point to specific verses in the Koran which they disagree with. Yeah, it's true that That's you never hear from the moderate Muslims criticizing the radical Muslims. Uh, I'm sorry, moderate Muslim what? They never criticize radical Muslims. Well, no, no, 
well, they do. The, the, the moderate Muslims do criticize the radical Muslims. Uh, for example, you know, uh, Dr. Jasser and, and uh, Shireen Kudosi and, and Kanta Ahmed and, and so on. Yeah, they, they come out against the radical Muslims all the time. But what the lie that they are telling is that Islam is basically okay if you just take the radicals out of it. Yeah. But that's the lie, because uh, the radicals are simply following Islam closely. That's what they don't tell you. Right. And, and uh, they don't tell you that they are standing against the specific passages of, of, uh, in the Koran, uh, the jihadist passages. They won't tell you that, because if they ever did that, they would be considered apostates. At this time, they're simply considered extremists by the Muslim community. In fact, I had an imam tell me that about Dr. Jasser once. Uh, I asked the imam, well, you know, what do you think about Dr. Jasser? And he whispered in my ear, Dr. Jasser is an extremist. And I couldn't believe my ears because we're all trained to believe that Dr. Jasser is a moderate. But, you know, the imam was right because extremism depends on your starting point. Uh, extremism only means a deviation from the norm, your accepted norms. And we think Dr. Jasser is a moderate because his values approach our values. The Muslims think that he's an extremist because Dr. Jasser's values deviate from Islamic norms. Uh, well, we that, need to uh, understand the logic of, and, uh, of the lexicon here, the logic of the words that we use. Well, uh, extremism, do, but, all it means is deviation from the norm. Okay, but Western now... Is, which norms are we talking about? Now, there's a, there's a, a position here that's kind of contradictory because we want to educate people about Islam, but we don't want them to... We don't want Islam to appear in our textbooks and all. So no, we have to have it in our we, textbooks. We need to. What is it that we are to do as activists to inform people of the insidious nature behind Sharia law and Islam's yes. origins, and at the same time exclude the teachings of Islam in our textbooks? No, we need to read the teachings of Islam so we realize what they stand for. So in other words, we got to almost open up. Now we're going to fall right into their hands because no. we're, we're going to be opening ourselves up to delving into Islam in an intense level right. in our public school system. And that will wake us and, up. But we're very dependent on teachers being able to teach it correctly in the, in the same vein as our caller. And that's, yeah. not, that's yeah. going to be hard. It's a big job that we have to do to re-educate our public about this. And the only authoritative way to do that is to quote directly from the Islamic sources. And then it's hard for them to accuse us of distorting it or spreading lies about Islam. And, and uh, we don't have to be qualified Islamic scholars. All we have to do is read what the qualified Islamic scholars actually tell us and then tell other people what they tell us. It's really that simple. Uh, you know, you sometimes hear the Muslims say, well, you, have, uh, you only read translations, uh, and you have to be able to speak Arabic in order to know what Islam is all about. Well, that's nonsense. The fact is the, the, all of the mosques use translations. Five-eighths of the Muslim world does not speak Arabic. Uh, so are they going to really tell us that five-eighths of the Muslim world doesn't know anything about Islam? Are you saying they that do. they speak Farsi? Other, other languages. Other languages. What other languages do they speak? They English. Know? English? Oh, uh, in, in Iran, they speak Persian. Right, they speak Farsi, correct? In, in, in uh, uh, India and uh, Pakistan, they speak Urdu and Pashtun. And, uh, in right. Malaysia, they speak Malaysian. In Indonesia, they speak Indonesian. Uh, as I say, five-eighths of the Muslim world is not Arabic, and they cannot read uh, Arabic. They cannot read Islam in the original. So they get all of their information yeah, good point. Uh, through translations. 
Yes, absolutely. That's a that's a great point. It's important that the audience. So there's gets plenty that of reliable point. English translations. Exactly, and, all, and the translations are all approved by the Islamic religious authorities. That's point one. Point two: uh, most of the Muslim terrorists are Arabs, and they don't use translations. They read it in the original. That case so in translations point. are irrelevant. Uh, because the translations are pretty much the same. You know, there's a very good Muslim website uh, called uh, Islam Awakened, which will give you uh, more than 30 searchable translations of the Koran, English translations, uh, where you can take any verse and you'll get 30 parallel English translations. And if you read them and compare them, you'll see that they're almost identical. And so it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference which translation you use. They're all approved by the Islamic religious authorities, and they all say pretty much the same thing. And so the notion, uh, the argument that the Muslims will make, well, you, you can't know about Islam except uh, uh, by reading Arabic, that's, that's simply a lie to prevent us from telling the truth about Islam. And it's not, again, our opinion. We're telling what the Islamic sources say about Islam. Uh, uh, there are exegeses of the Quran, oh. uh, which are translated and distributed by Muslim-approved uh, Islamic publishers. So we have a right to assume that what they're telling us is real. Okay, Carl. So now, how is it? Give us some backstory on your knowledge, and uh, how is it that we would get uh, thousands upon thousands of teachers to be embedded in our public school system, knowledgeable? in your vein and in your intensity and your passion to actually pull this off? Wouldn't it take, I don't know, 20 years to prepare enough teachers to be able to t teach? No, no, the no. They, they, all they, they all they have to do is read English. Yeah, yeah. you raise a very good question. How do we reach them? I, I don't have an answer to that. Uh, because, you know, how long did it take you to form these opinions and how, how, how intensive was your study? And well, how, how early was did it pretty start? I've been studying this ever since 9-11. So that's 18 years, uh, reading all kinds of stuff. Uh, yes, how do we get that knowledge to other people? That's the big question. That's a barrier that we have to cross. And as I suggested before, we can do that through, by using face group, uh, book groups and Twitter. Uh, many organizations have uh, their Facebook. We can simply post short passages about from the Koran and from Muhammad on those uh, Facebook sites. It will reach lots of people. Uh, we can talk to our pastors and rabbis uh, for whatever good that does, but show them also in short uh, bits uh, how Islam contradicts Christianity and contradicts Judaism and contradicts the American Constitution. Do that in short pieces and always quote the Islamic sources rather than giving our own opinion. If we give our own opinion, we're lost. Well, I'm they, sorry to disappoint, but us, Christ, us Christians, man, that would be a real high hurdle to get. Tell me about it. Yeah, that'd be very hard to get uh, to interrupt a sermon and start quoting Islam and how dangerous it is to our faith, the Christianity. Yes, that would be like wow. And I'm a Catholic, and uh, uh, yes. Ed's uh, Ed's uh, a Protestant evangelical. Holy roller, yes. Uh, holy, yes, yeah. It's uh, we both find it to be a really daunting task. 
Uh, you're right, it is daunting. And I don't have the exact answer, but we need to look for ways to spread the message to them, that is, to, to the uh, Christian community. The evangelicals more or less get it. Most of them do, it seems. Uh, although yeah, the, Catholics are too dogmatic. And the evangelicals that, that doesn't get it, uh, but we need to get to them. Uh, yeah, we need to reach out as far as we can precisely to all of those uh, uh, people. And uh, I don't have the absolute answer to that, but that's the direction we need to be working in, because if we don't reach out to them, we're lost. And we need to reach out through the Republican Party. Uh, that is so important. Yeah, back to there the is precincts. no other way to do it. Well, the Republicans are the only ones yep. who can limit Muslim immigration. They're the only ones who can declare the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization. Uh, we need to do those two things. They're the only ones who can uh, begin to uh, work on the educational system through our edu Department of Education to show that, uh, uh, or to, to pressure the schools not to promote Islam anymore. There are many schools that are actually uh, li literally promoting Islam by requiring the young people in grade school and high school to say Islamic prayers, for example. Yeah, forget uh, that it. needs to be stopped. Cases need to be brought against those schools uh, uh, for violating uh, separation of church and state. Uh, they have no problem criticizing Islam in the textbooks. Uh, sorry, criticizing Christianity in the textbooks, but Islam was given a pass. Well, we just need to bring that more to the attention of the people in the schools. School boards, contact the school boards, uh, educate them a little bit about this. Uh, no, no, I, no, please you know, don't it, suggest that. Job, it, That's like butting your head against concrete. Undertake. I don't know of any other way. If you can think of another way to do it, I'm all ears. Yeah, uh, I'll have a suggestion, but that's for another day. So thank you yep. very much for your call. We're going to uh, end it here. And yes. uh, it was quite it, it was quite, a, quite an event. Um, yes. <laughs> I can't, uh, can't thank you enough for your insight. Well, and thank you so much for having me. You Look bet. Look forward to the next time. You bet. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. So we've got we've got uh, uh, Houston. I think we've got a problem. Well, we've missed one of our callers, but, you know, we've certainly gotten a lot of information. Man, it's, uh, it's a real daunting task because separation of church from state has to yeah, exclude a religion that but they, they we've already It's a religion done. that's also an ideology. ideology. It's like, for example, Mayor Bloomberg was saying, was uh, arguing that the uh, a mosque should be allowed to be built near the World Trade Center. But I said to him, well, what if during the Cold War, the Soviet Union wanted to build a fort in Times Square? Would we have allowed that? Because that's the same thing. A mosque is a military installation because there is no separation between religion and state. Yes. And that's that's what we have to face up to. It's a religion that also includes as part of intrinsically well, you're going to have to be a little bit connected. more eloquent instead of saying a military installation, you're going to have to be more a, eloquent a and fort. say a fort. <laughs> no, something like uh I don't know, a spy facility. Or, it's a military or in, installation for carrying out attacks against unbelievers. Intellectual in, in, intelligence yeah. and everything. So one more caller. That's right. Let's see who we have now. I don't even want to say. Montes Borges. This Bohr, is the, David Borges. David Borges. This, this is David Borges calling in. All you right, thank you. You are now listening to WSQF 94. Point five FM. You are now live on the Concrete Conservative Show. 
I am Mac, and you're talking to NVL, who's got a bunch of questions because we've been going at it about yes. Islam thank, for quite some time. Thank you, David. We've had a lot of callers today on Islam, and uh, we, we've, we, we've informed our audience and trying to educate them that they will be, they're facing a political ideology as well as a religion. It's not just a religion, it's both combined. But we understand that you have been a police trainer. So why don't you tell us about what you've been doing in that respect? Oh, man, did we lose you? Are we having a problem with this phone again? No way. Uh, can you, uh, Mr. Barza, I, I can hear you on the... I, I can see that you're, your phone is working, but uh, we can't hear you. Can we hear you? Oh, this is the pits, man. This is happening again. So it's... Uh, it's got to be us now, because now it's just a second caller. It definitely is the phone. Uh, terrible, 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 terrible. Is this an Islamic phone? It's not, is it? I don't know. They don't make phones in the Islamic world. <laughs> they just scream out loud now. Oh, my God. Well, uh, uh, See if you can call, call him back. Call him back. No, I'm going to wait for him to call, because I can see me calling him. He's calling me. And, okay. And we just got to struggle through this and resolve this technical difficulty. I've been having, it's just a barrage of technical difficulties. So, there you go. We get him again. Hello, David, is that you? I hear you fine. Do you hear me? Yes, yes, thank you. Now, we were just talking about how you are okay, a police. Let me just give you a little background. I retired from the Army in 1992. I served uh, 23 years as a commissioned officer, and then I joined uh, Georgia law enforcement, both uh, working for a sheriff's office and a uh, uh, becoming the police chief of a suburb of Atlanta for three years. So a total of 19 years in sub civilian law enforcement. And what caused me to get out was the fact that it was Fort Hood. If you remember when yep. the Obama administration labeled it workplace violence, I knew that there was something wrong with that. So I thought I would... Uh, start to explore a little bit more about Islam, and what I found out was that uh, the threat of Islam is far worse than I ever thought. And uh, it, in 2012, I left my full-time job to attempt to train law enforcement officers, and I've uh, so far trained in excess of 1,500, prim primarily in the southeast states, uh, I've been in your state, I uh, was in Tampa a few weeks back, and I've been down in uh, Broward County as well. Um, what I have found out is that police officers and sheriff's deputies are totally unaware of the threat that faces them and their local communities concerning Islam. I think Claire Lopez talked in the first hour about our first period about how the training has been purged at the federal level not only with the FBI and throughout the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of Defense. So what that means is, is all branches of the service at the federal level to include the Reserve and National Guard components are not being trained in the true nature of the Islamic threat. It's all been purged out and has not been reinstated to this day, even under the Trump administration. So there's a few trainers out there, uh, like myself, that are trying to get the word out to at least alert local law enforcement and give them some ideas of things they can do to protect their communities. But it's an uphill battle, I will tell you. 
So what kind of response have you been getting? Uh, for example, down here in Broward County. Well, let me just tell you, the normal response is, especially with prior military in the class, and a lot of our younger officers, uh, patrol officers and sheriff's deputies, have served in the military in Iraq and Afghanistan, and most of them leave the first day of training highly incensed, very angry, that they feel betrayed. They feel betrayed because they weren't, did not receive this training in the military, and they feel betrayed by their elected officials back home because they're not doing anything about it. Yep. Uh, they're totally silent about the threat. They don't understand the Muslim Brotherhood and what the Muslim Brotherhood is up to. Uh, it's penetrated all aspects of our government, just like Claire uh, to told you in the first period. And it's uh, that's what angers them the most, is how betrayed they are and how they weren't even prepared for when they went overseas. Hmm. And what? And not even under the new administration. For example, General Mattis was thought to be a great warrior, and he was Secretary of Defense for a couple of years. Did he do anything to reverse this? No, absolutely not. In fact, if you remember, uh, one of the former National Security advisors, General McMaster, said right. that the uh, jihadists, that the Islamic terrorists have hijacked a peaceful re yeah, uh, religion. No, that was totally out of... Well, what that, I think that is that... That is the sentiment right. that permeates at the highest levels of the military. Remember, these guys would not have been promoted right. if, if they did not hold the party line under the Obama administration. And that was the party line. And it started under George W. Bush when he said right. that Islam is a religion of peace. Right. And, well, uh, one, one of the reasons why I think General uh, Michael Flynn, who was head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, was uh, set upon and trapped by the FBI and others, I think it's because he was one of the few who was willing to express concern about Islam as a political ideology. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, he is one of the few that understood it. And uh, to this day, uh, it's a terrible loss for our country that men like him, generals like him, were forced out of the military because he represented a threat, because he knew the, th he knew the truth, and many others uh, were, were purged out of the armed forces throughout Obama's administration because they understood the truth. And it was those who survived who, uh, who took the party line, took the bait, if you will, right. and uh, just like McMaster said, um, that Islam has been hijacked, it rep it's, uh, it's basically a religion of peace, that uh, the uh, militant verses were historical, they, they don't apply today, and that the uh, Islamists, whether it be ISIS or Al-Qaeda, have uh, perverted Islam to reach their goals. What about uh, senior members now? For example, uh, Chris Ray, head of the FBI, in my view, he's just a swamp creature. Has he done anything to improve the situation? He hasn't addressed it. Right. He has not addressed the training. Uh, it has not been addressed at any part of the Department of Justice to include the FBI. It has not been, it's not been changed one bit. The uh, Department of Homeland Security has just published a document dated September 2019, 
and it's entitled A Strategic Framework for Countering Terrorism and Targeted Violence. Nothing about well, Islam. It, it identifies three principal threats, violent threats to the United States. One is Islamic, which is primarily the larger groups, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and those that uh, these groups inspire, the local independent jihadists here in this country. And the second principal group are those uh, people that are mo motivated more by uh, they're against race, they're against religions, specific religions, whether it be Jews or whoever, uh, against uh, homosexuals, whatever. They're motivated by another perverted ideology. And the last are targeted violence, those that commit mass attacks and they can't figure out what the motive is, that they're not ideologically motivated, if you will. Okay. No mention in this document about the Muslim Brotherhood at all. Mm. Not one word in this document about the Muslim Brotherhood. And the second point, point that I would make, within the document itself, nowhere does it say that law enforcement officers and national security officers need to understand the ideology that motivates these groups. Mm -hmm. Because if they did that, then we'd have to understand the true ideology of Islam and the members of the Muslim Brotherhood who have penetrated the Department of Homeland Security do not want that to happen. Can these, can these people be fired given their civil service protection? If they're civil service protected, no. No, yeah. they, they can't. Well, that's that's too bad because it's really, it's the civil service that's leading this coup against President Trump and uh, you, for one reason or another, what do you think? Do you, have you seen uh, an alliance between, say, progressive groups and Islamic groups? Oh, yes. That's the red-green axis, if you will. Absolutely, there's an alliance. There's been an alliance for a long time. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right. And uh, that's exactly where that comes from, and that's exactly what's transpiring. The progressives have align themselves with, with the Muslim Brotherhood. They both have similar goals, and that is to change, radically change the United States for one world, one world government. Right. Now the progressives want to do it underneath the United Nations. Of course, the Islamists want to do it under a caliphate. Sooner or later, these two groups are going to have to contend with each other. But in the meantime, in the meantime, you have a big problem uh, because they're both helping each other. Okay, so you, uh, earlier you said that, especially the junior officers that you train, end the first day very upset that they were not warned about this and that they've really been betrayed. What do they do on the second day? Well, it's a continuation. Uh, in the second day, primarily, I'm talking more about in-depth about the Muslim Brotherhood. I'm talking about the purge to let them know about it. Right. We get into mosques and uh, what they represent, what the Muslim Brotherhood is using mosques for. And then we get into the radicalization process. How do you take a otherwise uh, law-abiding citizen, whether they be a Muslim, second, third generation, or a recent convert to Islam, and transform that individual into a jihadist killer? Mm -hmm. Because remember this, every single attack in the United States since 9-11, perpetrated in the name of Islam, 
has been committed by an independent jihadist operating alone, but part of an international network. Right. He's been radicalized with help from outside. He's been radicalized by fully radicalized uh, preachers and other individuals here in this country. And then he set out, just like a ticking time bomb, he can choose his target and choose his method of attack when he wants to. And that's what's happened ever since 9-11. What about, okay, so what about prison recruiting? Yeah, that's a big part of it. Uh, we have imams, uh, prison chapels, chaplains, if you will, and those who are Muslim are all certified by the Muslim Brotherhood. And they're employees of the prison prison system and Department of Defense, all branches of the service, hire Muslim chaplains that are certified by the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, there you are. We're we're paying the Clinton administration. We're paying for our own destruction. Excuse me? We're paying for our own destruction. Yes. Yeah, it's 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 an insidious problem uh, that has permeated all aspects of our culture, all of our institutions, and all aspects of our government. Hmm. So, what do you see as a solution? Uh, speaking out more. Uh, well, that's certainly part of it. We have to inform people of the true nature of the threat. Of course, a lot of people their eyes glass over and. Uh, because they've already been indoctrinated within our school system, within our, co- within our colleges and universities. They've been indoctrinated by George W. Bush and his administration and Islam's a religion of peace, and this is right. what we've got to overcome. The, the biases and prejudices, the propaganda, if you will, that these peop- that people have bought into. Well, what do you think is the reason, because it's been this, uh, the central comment in all three guests today, what really prompted Bush to say that with such prominent Muslim brotherhoods, you know, standing next to him when he said it? Well, if you read his book, and I have uh, right after he left office, he was very much concerned of a backlash after 9-11 uh, against Muslims. And he figured that at least initially he had to da- tamper that as much as he could. And I understand that because I've got a feeling there would have been a tremendous backlash if he had told the truth. Well, I but guess he didn't have to do that for eight years. He could have very easily said that I've been educated since 9/11. I've been, I've taken, I've been briefed on the true nature of the threat, and we've got, we've got to confront it head on. The yeah, other part that, of this it, is, and we have to remember this, that not all Muslims are our enemy. We have peaceful, law-abiding Muslims serving in throughout the military. They are in our local police department, sheriff's offices, and they are just as patriotic, if not more so, than many Americans are. So we cannot paint Muslims with a broad brush. Now, we can paint Islam with a broad brush, but we can't paint all Muslims with a broad brush. Yeah, Remember, there difficult. are different degrees of Christianity. We have some nominal Christians. We have cultural Christians that never go to church, uh, don't subscribe or don't follow any of the commandments, but they claim that they're Christians. Same for Jews, same for any religion. So we don't paint people with a broad brush. We yeah, well, study the but... religion itself, understand it, 
understand what we're up against, understand what motivates those people who are following the strictly following the tenets of the of their respective religions. And when you when you study the tenets of Islam, just like Claire Lopez and others before me have talked about, you cannot help but come back with only one conclusion. Islam is extremely violent. And it's extremely totalitarian. Yes, it has religious aspects, and it has other aspects that uh, are not violations of law, but it also promotes many crimes within Islamic law. For example, polygamy. Another crime that's promoted or authorized is a husband can beat his wife. No, how child, about, how about child pedophilia? pedophilia. Yeah, it's pedophilia. okay to marry a nine-year-old girl. Why? Because Muhammad married a six-year-old girl and consummated the marriage when she was nine. I could go on and on and on of a list of Sharia-based crimes that are violations of U.S. law. And when people understand that, that there are numerous, numerous criminal acts that are sanctioned by Sharia that violate U.S. law, uh, I would think that eyes then will start to be open. Yeah, I, I, I definitely uh, must agree with you. The only... The only thing that I have a problem with is that when you compare, when you use a, com a comparison about those who are fervent in Islam and those who are not, and we compare them to our faith, even the most secular Christian doesn't blow himself up. So, right. you know, there's a big, there's a big devoid, an intellectual void there on how we explain this to to those who make that claim that, well, well, you know, some Islamists are just as patriotic, they serve in the military and our police forces. I go, yes, but, and there's some Christians that don't go to church and there's some that don't obey the Ten Commandments, but the fact is that even those folks don't blow themselves up, so. Well, neither, neither, neither are secular Muslims blowing themselves up. It's not a secular Muslim that's our problem. It's a very orthodox, fundamentalist Muslim that represents our problem. Yeah. We call them so the obvious because the they're, they're the ones that are pushing for a return of Islam to its original roots. Yes. So I'd much rather deal with a secular Muslim, a cultural Muslim, a reformed Muslim, than a orthodox Muslim, because that's the one that I've got to be concerned with. Yeah, that point is well taken. Absolutely. So how do you tell the difference? Well, how do you tell the difference between a congressman or elected official you can trust? No, forget <laughs> it. No, but are there catchphrases that you've heard? Or are there something, is there a, a look about them? Is it a dress? Uh, no, 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 no. How about within a mosque? Every, I, I, tell, I tell police officers every chance I get that every day you have to deal with people who are going to do tell lies. Every day you have to deal with people who are not telling the truth, spinning the truth to make it better for them, what have you. And this is no different. And we all have our ways of vetting people, of getting a sense, yeah, I think I can trust this person, or eh, I don't think I can. But it takes time. And I give Peace officers, a whole list of questions to read into the dialogue with people to see how they respond. If they respond defensively over some probing questions, for example, weave into the dialogue with a Muslim, does Israel have the right to exist? How do they respond? How do they respond to something like that? Uh, 
ask a Muslim who was it, who was uh, Muhammad's favorite wife. Do you know who that is? Well, her name is Aisha, and she was the one that was given to Muhammad when she was six as a gift in marriage by her father. And he consummated the wedding at age nine. How about this question? If you leave Islam, should you be punished? Or do you have the right to leave Islam? Well, we, we know that it, the punishment is by death. It's a capital offense to leave Islam. Once you're in, you're in for life. There are no do-overs. So I give peace officers a variety of questions to use to weave into the conversation if they're talking to an imam, for example, or just a, 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 who they might consider a nonviolent, peaceful, law-abiding Muslim. See how they respond. A lot of Muslims don't even understand their own religion. And I think it was Clara Lopez that brought up the fact that they're even told, don't bother reading the Quran because there are so many different versions of it. Just pay attention to what your imam says. Well, if you're not going to the mosque, you don't know too much about uh, Islam. So they certainly don't know, have a firm understanding of this faith that they promote to know about. That's true. Well, uh, thank you very much for that insight. Uh, we are going to delve into this uh, further, I suppose, on another show, because I think nobody in radio is really delving into Islam as we are here in South Florida, definitely not in South Florida. So I can't thank you enough. All the callers today have been fantastic, and we're about at the end of our show. So I hope you'll call us back and uh, with new insights uh, when we're ready to uh, have you again. Well, you just let me know. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed listening to your previous uh, callers, and I just hope your your audience has uh, benefited from it. You'll certainly know if you get any comments back, but I'd love to come back. Just let me know when I can do it. Thank well, you. Thank you very much for your time. God bless. Bye-bye. Take care. So there we have it, folks. We've, we're really... Two hours of Islamic education, right? Yes. Uh, I've learned a lot. I hope you have. This is the what community radio is all about. It's about talking about subjects that commercial radio radio station won't touch. They just won't go there. And uh, you know, we'll appreciate your comments on our Facebook pages, where you know Blink Radio WSQF uh, has two Facebook pages. Uh, go ahead and make your comments if you heard the show, if you like the show, uh, if you're just insulted by what you heard, if you disagree, that's fine with me. I'm also on Instagram, Mac on the Rock. You can go ahead and blast me uh, about that too, although I won't be posting anything uh, related to this because I don't take any video on the radio shows. Others do, but I don't. So, you know, let us know. Uh, we have a problem, and um, I, I just think that uh, we have to address the fact that Islam is very violent, and I think it's point of fact that those who can't face that reality if they practice Islam. They can't face the, f the fact that they have literal, literal meanings and texts continuously in the Quran that call for the breaking of a lot of American laws. I'm just talking about the United States here. We made them very clear that uh, I don't know how we can curb this. I don't know how we can even teach this and I don't know if we could even prepare teachers to teach in the manner in which our guests have just explained it to us, because they're going to run, they would run into 
all kinds of PC at the school board. Level. Well, that's that's well, the cost. That's the thing. You got to really delve into these things. How is it that you can be? That's a strong arm tactic to be able to go and emphasize the violence behind Sharia, the violence behind the origins of Islam. You did a wonderful expose on on the battlefront of mm-hmm. Islam. I don't even think a teacher could turn her back on a whiteboard and explain what you explained without getting somebody in the classroom, an Islamic person, Muslim person, immediately running to the principal, running to the school board, complaining about the savagery that occurred in these battles. That It's all true. It's all it, documented it's by all Muslims and, and, and they would non-Muslims. immediately censor these textbooks. They would immediately take... Imagine the photographs of these beheadings and stuff in a textbook. Oh, yeah. It would Prisoners be, of war were beheaded, yeah. Uh, it's just... Uh, you know what's really... What I find very uh, real is that uh, it was, it's very medieval, and yet it's those times. It's true. It's pre-medieval. I mean, the rise of Islam is what ended the ancient world in the Mediterranean, the ancient world of the gr- ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans. And it also ended uh, the barbaric wars before the modern Western wars of World War One and World War II. Well, yeah, no, that was way after. No, that's, right. that's at the end of the Ottoman Empire. Well, that yeah, but I'm talking about... 635, yes, 7th century. Yes, but it until 1922. That's right. <laughs> so that's a huge... And now it's back. They're not gone. And it's They're not, here. And, and, right. I, They're here. And it's another thing for the audience to know as my final shot is that many of these battles, many of these pivotal moments happened on 9-11. Think about that. Right. That's an important date. A very important date in Islam's defeats. So stay free, my friends. That's the end the very end of a very exciting Concrete Conservative show. Yours truly, Mac. Ed Vidal, you want to say goodbye? Thank you all. Adam's up next with Statues and Stories. If you like our programming on WSQF 94.5 in Key Biscayne, you can also hear us very far away nationwide, WSQFradio.com. And if you like our audio files and our subject matter, subscribe to YouTube Mac on the Rock Rampage. Take care and stay free.